Thank you all for listening today. It is with great honor that I have our guest who is signing in, Dr. Akila Kade. Hello. Can you hear me? I do. It's, yeah. you know, yeah, sometimes it's automatic mute, unmute, who knows? <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. It's uh I'm I'm very, very glad to see you in Zoom land. Yes. Uh right now. Uh, and yeah, I feel like there's so much we need to get into. So we might as well first like really get into it. But first, can you tell everyone a bit about who you are? Because I have something that I could read, but it, it wouldn't do you justice. So I'm going to let you speak about yourself in your own words. Sure. Um, I always like to start by saying I'm amazing. That is who yes, I Yes, you am. are. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. Um, I am Dr. Akila Kade, founder and CEO of Change Kade. We are an organizational development consulting firm, and we do everything to create cultures of belonging. So that means we work with like small companies and startups all the way up to million and billion dollar companies. Um, we happen to be like internationally known for our diversity work too. So we also do work in diversity, equity, inclusion, which also leads into crisis management and recovery. Um, my baby will be eight years old in January. And I always like to share that because a lot of businesses don't make it really past the first couple of years, definitely five. Um, so that's a proud moment. I'm also an author. My first book comes out February, 2024, and it is called My Love Language is Dismantling White Supremacy. So I'm very excited for that. Um, I'm a creative director. I am a sensitivity editor, so I edit other people's books, publishers' books, authors' books. Um, I model. I just, I do whatever brings me joy. Well, great. Thank you so much. Uh, so let's, let's just talk about yeah. like, what's going on. First of all, congratulations on the Forbes interview oh. and you were on the cover and that's like, that's legit. I, 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 I. I didn't know they were doing any of that. So, because the interview was done, this is the inside scoop. The interview was done months and months ago. So I actually forgot about it. So um, it's nice. I like being yeah. a Forbes person. It's kind of cool. It's my yeah. third, my third feature in Forbes. And wow. I'm also on one Forbes list. So, Well, oh, great. Congratulations. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, I don't pay, not being a capitalist myself, I don't pay a ton of attention to Forbes. However, I do have, um, you know, it is a very respectable publication with very high <laughs> journalistic standards. And I think that that you've been included not once, but three times and it made it to the cover that, you know, that that says a lot. So, uh, again, you know, kudos to you for that. So uh, I know that the type of work you do, you work with a, a range of industries, correct? Yeah. OK, so. Yeah. Uh, but I know you more for the work that you've done in the wine industry, yeah. uh, specifically the work you do with uh, Mariam Ahmed with Doctor with Diversity and Wine the Wine Leadership Forum. Yeah. So, so can you maybe just talk about how that came about? How let's say you met Mariam and how the two of you decided to to start this forum. Yeah, I forgot. I do so many things. So um, I'm the, the co-leader of the Diversity and Wine Leadership Forum, and what the forum is is essentially a group of organizations that are working in the wine space, whether it is um, providing some counseling support or consulting or having a fellowship organization or fund, they're in a position where they are wanting to hold themselves accountable about um, diversity in wine being more than the grapes. So the Diversity Wine Leadership Forum started 
in 2020 with uh, Miriam Ahmed and Elaine Chikan Brown, and they started the organization where they were getting folks together just to have these, what some people may view as difficult conversations, other people may view as important conversations um, to try to see if there could be a shift or change in the wine space. And for your listeners, you may or may not know that the wine world is very, 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 very white. And it's very, 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 very heterosexual. <laughs> There's a lot of nepotism. Um, that's and, and, it, and it's very, very, very male. Very, 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 very male. And so there's so many more spaces, not only for women, and that's like a whole thing, like women, and the list goes on and on for anyone who identifies as women, but for the LGBTQ plus population, for um, disabled community, there's, and obviously BIPOC people, Black, Indigenous people of color. So that's what this forum is about. So we have a group of people, we gather twice a year to talk about topics that we all deem are important or urgent, but we also do a do the work series and that's open to the public, anyone in the wine industry where they can come in and learn how they can actually do the work to make sure there are spaces for those important groups that I just mentioned in the wine world. Yeah. And I think one thing too, as we're talking about the, the wine industry specifically, is now there are, yes, there are more women in the industry than there were a few years ago. There are more people of color in the industry. There are more uh, queer identified people, but the there it's still as far as like the norms it's still very much um driven by like heteropatriarchal you know white supremacist cultural values and um and that's something which i mean i talk about that a lot and so i don't need to bring like my stuff into it too much only to to the fact that that the work you're doing i think is is trying to change some of that um and so i i do think that as we're like when we have conversations and I know like I having been to been in to some of the forums too. Uh, yeah, I always try to go, approach the forums and anything that I do. It, I, I think as you've seen where it's sort of like, okay, let's not just talking about like filling the ranks, but it's about like really changing that culture. Mm-hmm. And how have you found, especially like compared to some of the other industries you work with that you work in, yeah. what, What's been your experience of trying to change this dominant culture in the wine industry? Uh, There's a lot of resistance, right? Because, I mean, well, let's take a step back. So I think it's really important that people know that in the wine industry, it's really a family-driven business. Family, family, friends, family, actual friends, because there's ownership, of the land, of the space, of the grapes, of the facility, the distribution, whatever it is. There's a lot of ownership that's there. And so typically when we talk about ownership, it is centered around a whole bunch of white guys that have that. And if the white guy is, you know, the patriarch in the family, then, you know, the white son is going to take over the vineyard. And it's like the same thing is going to be perpetuated over and over again. But, well, but that's yeah. not so, that's, yes, I think that's that's true, let's say, of Europe, but it's not so true of, of California, um, I mean, it's it's still like when I think I think that might have been true of California, like in the 70s and 80s. But now where you have so much is like so many wineries and so many other wine businesses are, you know, are just corporate owned. I mean, yeah, but it's the same thing. Right. So I think it's important to talk about the history there. Right. Where it's still mm-hmm. the same thing. You still have white guys who are deemed as the right folks who can run these wine things, whatever the wine thing may be, the business, the corporation, the winery. And yes, I agree. It's corporate. You have 
you know, wine industries that are publicly traded too, right? So you have all of that there. So that's all to say it's the same, regardless if we're working with a retail company or a tech company or a biotech company, whoever it may be, you have this power dynamic that's centered around heterosexual cisgendered white men. And when it comes to that, that's what you see in the policies, the practices, the procedures, the language, who they're hiring, who they're befriending, who's promoted, who's not promoted, who's held accountable, who's not held accountable. And all of that continues. I think, again, the difference with the wine industry, from what I've noticed, is that there's more acceptance of that on that side. And I see that, especially because women are making strides in the wine industry, sure, but I don't think at the same level as how they are making strides and even startups. If we just look at startup culture, because there's this belief that the guy makes the decision. Um, and I think that's the thing that really stops the, the behavior change because you have so many men who are in positions of power who don't really want to do things differently because they don't have to. If we look at these tech companies over the past few years, we've seen a lot of public things happen that are pretty awful. And so they are forced to, because of money and capitalism, to start to change things, whether they believe it or not. So now they're held to these standards. And this is what is absent in the wine industry. They're held to standards in other uh, industries. So we have um, whatever they want to call them, OKRs, KPIs, objectives, goals, industry things that people have to work towards, that are incentivized to work towards, to hold them accountable to the changes that are needed to have more diversity. Well, I think that, uh, I, I yeah, that resonates. I, <laughs> I, I hear you there. Do you think that in the last few years, and let's, let's just let's say specifically like in 2020, we were in lockdown because of COVID. And then there, because of the police executions of unarmed black people, there were a lot of protests. And then I start to see on you know Instagram and where a lot of wine businesses, including those that were owned by you know white, like cisgender, heterosexual men, you know, Black Lives Matter, and all you know, and I'm not, I'm not poo pooing that because I think that it's you know sometimes people need to start somewhere, mm -hmm. uh, but. Where do you think, like that was you know, over, that was like two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. Where do you see things are now, you know, with that movement that started off in, in the wine industry? Yeah, well, you know, we were talking about May 25th, 2020 uh, with the, the murder of George Floyd. And after that, we saw the emergence of the black box right? The black box was everywhere in social media. People are like, I'm going to do something about it, right? Um, and here we are now, almost almost 2023. The year has flown by with a pandemic that's been sprinkled into the mix, right? And we're still seeing a lot of the same thing um, that was happening before. So when people ask me this question, they always expect me to say like, yeah, things are different. But the reality is, is they're not. We're in this very exhaustive cycle of some horrible, horrific, traumatic thing happens. People want to do better. And then they're distracted by whatever shiny thing it may be. And then another horrific thing happens and people want to do better. So I don't think people have in the love and what we need for this country have been put in a position where they're choosing to make changes daily to not be so reactive right? To be more proactive. I don't think we're there. There's little bits of progress that are happening. People for sure can um, not 
call people out, but call people in to say, hey, that's not okay, a brand, a person, a business, whatever it may be. We definitely are seeing more of that, but people are still in this reactive place opposed to the acceptance that things need to change for the forever, for the long term. Yes, that's something which you've talked about in the Forbes article a bit about the difference between being an accomplice and being an ally. Mm -hmm. And and there's, I I think like one thing that you say, and and this is something which I preach a lot here at the radio station too, is that when you want, if you're going to talk about diversity and, you know, these issues, it's not just, okay, like you have your token symbolic thing, but that you're incorporating it into everything you do. You know, like you, you mentioned in the article about, about like when you're brushing your teeth. Um, And I think that, uh, uh, that there are a lot of wine businesses that were horrified um, and also coupled with the fact that at the time they actually had the time to, pay more attention to these issues because a lot of businesses were, you know, they were just really limited in what they could do at the time. And now that things are back to the way they were, how many businesses are really like are incorporating their efforts to be not just allies, but accomplices into the work they do. Now I do see Mm -hmm. some that are are there. Mm -hmm. Like I could, yeah, I can name a few of uh, yeah, Minimo in Oakland. Uh, I mean, they they can they do great work. Uh, you know, Akali Rai, of course, they do great work. Uh, but then there are others who I'm not going to mention because uh, I don't like to go negative uh, or call out people for negative stuff. But uh, and it just seems to me like it was just a lot of performative BS. And mm-hmm. I and so. But I was just wondering from your like view, because I think you I, I'm a wine professional. I've been a longtime wine professional. And this is and I also like went and got a graduate degree in social justice. Uh, but like I think you're someone who has worked in the sphere of of social justice and, and trying to create equity and anti-racism. Um, and then kind of took that and brought that into one. So I'm wondering sort of from your bird's eye view, what what you see? Oh, I see so many things. I mean, first of all, I think it's really cool when anyone gets a degree in social justice. I I think it's really important to note that um, there's always like a, a transferable skill set that every person has and how they're showing up into whatever space. Um, so... And I bring that up because sometimes some people know how to actually do the work at work because there's boundaries, there's rules, they're enforced, they have to, they know what to do. But outside of that, they don't know what to do, right? And they're in this, in this position. And so when you're in a position when someone's like, okay, well, I think I'm supposed to do this, but I don't really want to do this, or I don't really know what to do. That's when you end up with what you're talking about, the performative stuff, yeah. right? And what performative means essentially is that the actions and words don't match when it comes up to it. And so when I'm thinking about the different industries that we work with, we have a discrimination doesn't discriminate. So that's why we're everywhere. I didn't plan on like being someone who's a a resource or sought out resource in the wine industry. All I planned on was making sure people had places to belong wherever they're working, whatever experience they're happening. Right. And I got into that, that space. But what we're seeing is that people are just confused. They're still confused. And that confusion, a lot of it comes from, if we go back to that power dynamic, 
white people or white men who are in power and they don't want to be wrong. So they just stay in the same kind of pattern, right? Of where they're going. And so we can see some people who are doing great work, like the places that you mentioned. I think also um, Spotswood Winery is another wonderful example of doing great work. And then you have people who just literally don't care. They just don't care. And unfortunately, due to capitalism, they don't have to. They don't have to care. Well, oh, we found a bird. We found a bird. Is it a live bird or it's a toy bird? Uh, no, actual bird outside. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I'll tell you what, this would be a great time while we're dealing with the bird to go to for a, a quick break for a PSA. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. I am Pamela Louie and my guest is Dr. Akila Kede. Uh, and we will be back in just a minute. So we're back and uh, you're listening to Fifth Wave Radio, Queerly Drinking, and this is Pamela Lulee. So my guest is Dr. Akila Kade, who uh, started Change Kade. So if you can maybe just tell everyone more about your background and how you got into doing this type of work. Uh, yeah. Because I think, you know, as you're, it's not too many people like, are in sixth grade and say, wow, I want to go and start an organization that is completely focused on, on changing the way that companies, <laughs> companies culture, maybe today there is, maybe uh, <laughs> there might yeah. be a few, but there I don't some. know if there were back <laughs> when. So um, the, the history of me. So I actually originally wanted to be a, a pediatrician. I was, um, I was pre-med in college. Like I knew I wanted to be a doctor when I was like eight or nine, pre-med, did the whole thing. I met this wonderful person called chemistry and I hated it. And I, I like dropped out of it. I was like, I don't think I can do this. And I didn't think I had the math brain. So I decided to go to the non-clinical side of the health world um, and to go into health administration. So in health administration, I had a career where I was either managing grants that would basically make the world a better place, whether in the community, a hospital, um, university. And I was doing that whole spectrum. Essentially, I got to a place where um, I had to get an additional degree. So I went to get my master's in public health. Um, and when I got that, everyone's like, you're set. That's your terminal degree. You can do all the things you want to do. Uh, but that didn't work because I'm a black woman and I look young or I'm perceived young for some people. And so that didn't work. So then I decided to get my doctorate in health science and leadership and organizational behavior. And I got that and that worked to a certain extent. Just got to a point where I was in a place that didn't really want to make change. They're more focused on kind of a, a cyclical approach and like a rinse and repeat and not in a healthy way. And so um I decided that I wanted to start my company. Now, I've always wanted to be a consultant. So there is something there. So when I was younger, I was like, I want to have my own business at some point. Like younger as an undergrad days, I want to have my own business. But I worked full-time and I did my doctorate full-time. So my doctoral program was four to seven years, but I did it in three years. So it wasn't healthy on top of working full-time. And so I was like, okay, um, I need a break. So because the job I was in, I was being discriminated against, which was very on brand for who I am now. Um, I found another job where I felt like I arrived for folks here in the Bay Area. I had a 10 minute commute by car and and free parking 
where I went. It was like the dream commute, like no traffic. It was fantastic. I felt like I literally arrived at that point. I didn't have to hop in a train. I didn't have to sit in traffic. Top floor, power suits, doing my thing, executive for an organization, um, essentially an executive coach for hundreds and hundreds of executives um, at this organization. And one day I was in a one-on-one meeting with my boss. He looked at me, white, heterosexual, cisgendered male. Um, and he said, I don't think you were that smart when I interviewed you, but you are smart. And I was like, I, what? This is a doctoral preferred role that I'm in. And the person before me had a doctorate. I, I thought I you know, was in a position where I was finally valued to what I had to bring and all, you know, nope. And so I asked him why he said that. And he was like, oh, I guess that's offensive. I'm sorry. And I said, yeah, no, that's incredibly offensive. Um, and I'm going to have to rebuild my trust with you because it was hurtful. So he fired me the next week. So here I am. I had this like kind of little pretend consulting firm. It was a side hustle. Um, and then I was fired. And so then I had a moment of reflection. And as I looked back on my career, there was this pattern of like harassment, discrimination, othering, whatever it was. It was just negative. And so I asked myself, what could I do to fix that? And then now I've been doing this for almost eight years um, to get here. So pre-med to working with all types of companies all over the world. Wow. Yeah, I think that it's, I mean, that's not that surprising that your, the work you're doing would be born out of some of the experiences that you had. Uh, you know, I mean, that's, I feel like the, some of the work that I'm doing or a lot of the work I'm doing is because of the what I've observed, but also the way that I've been treated throughout my career for being queer, for being mm -hmm. you know perceived as female, uh, for and for also not being someone who is just going to take it. Yeah, I mean, I think especially if you're someone like yourself, yeah, uh, where you speak up and you're not and you're going to fight back, it's it's even more threatening. So um, the the speaking up exactly the speaking yeah. up happened. Um, well. The funny thing is, as I look back, because I get asked this question a lot, as I look back in my career, I was like class president in fifth grade. I would like run stuff in Girl Scouts. Like I was always in this position where I would like speak up or want to lead or, you know, make sure that everyone felt valued. But the speaking up really was solidified when I was fired um, illegally because I chose to no longer be in that position where even at times I may have said something, I may have just stepped in the back to not, you know, to keep my job. That was the first time where I was like, I don't really care what I lose. If I lose whatever, I am myself. And by doing that, it allows me to um, be my true authentic self now. And so that's why if anyone follows me on social media, I just say what a lot of people are thinking, but they may not feel like they can say it or afraid to say it or have fear around it. And I just don't do that anymore because that kept me in those perceived boxes also of what you were talking about. And I, I refuse to be in anyone's box. Yeah. It's liberating. It really is. Yeah, it is. And I get, yeah. I have privilege because I have my own company and I can say and do what I want and who I hire, who I work with. I absolutely understand that. But even with all this privilege that I have, essentially what I'm doing is dismantling white supremacy. I'm dismantling a problem I didn't even, you know, uh, create. So, yeah. Well, so you're, I, you lead often in uh, the work that you do with uh, white supremacy. And I think mm -hmm. even like more specifically anti-blackness too. Um, mm -hmm. And, but also being someone who is like, you know, who, who's female identified, how do you see where that there's that intersection and how it plays off of one another? Um, and also maybe, and even let's say maybe the tension between the two. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so um, I think intersectionality is really important because that's where we can highlight our identity. So, you know, for your listeners out there, I am a heterosexual cisgender black disabled woman. And I always want to say that because disability is a whole whole intersection um, in itself and how I'm perceived. I have visible and invisible disability. Sometimes I have a cane. Sometimes I don't have a cane. You know, sometimes I have on a brace. Sometimes I don't have on a brace. It all depends um, and what's going on. So intersectionality is how we can understand who we are because we all tend to have different identities about ourselves. And so for people who may not know what that means, intersectionality, if you think of like a bus going down a street and there's intersections, the bus has people on it. If that first intersection is um, Black people, Black people would have to get off. If the next intersection is uh, people who identify as women, they would have to get off. If the next intersection is people who are disabled, they would have to get off and so forth. So by the time that bus makes it to its final destination, you're pretty much going to have those who have the most power in there, white dominant culture, white supremacy, that's there. So intersectionality is the core into how I do this work because I don't have the privilege of just being a woman. I don't have the privilege of just being disabled. I don't have the privilege of just being a black person. I am all those things all the time. And so when I'm working with my clients, I'm helping them realize that just as I may not look like I have something or you may be putting me in a a type of box, there's more to me. And that's the same for their peers around them, whoever they supervise and so forth. So intersectionality is the core to how we get into positions to dismantle things that oppress those who don't have as much power. And with the different companies you work with, how does that, when you try to explain that, (laughs) how does that go over? And I'm sure that that's not a simple answer because you work with so many different types of companies, but maybe... If you could give some examples, not necessarily naming the specific companies, but let's say the types of companies uh, and how uh, the work that you're doing is is both received and implemented. So I'm a storyteller, so I tend to use stories and stories work for anyone. Uh, We're all conditioned to listen to stories. Right. And so in that case, a wonderful example, um, white women wonderful example. And that's because um, white women, those who identify as cis women, can pick and choose who they are. They can be white one day and they can be a woman another day. And we see that with um, what happens in the workplace and who's promoted and who they hire and fire. We see that with the women's march and who's involved in the women's march. We see that with um, the Roe versus Wade, right? And that being turned over and how so many white women were so upset, but they weren't upset with what you were talking about earlier, Pam, as far as, you know, what's been happening to the to BIPOC communities, the AAPI community, Asian American Pacific Islander community, how Black people are still being harmed, maimed and murdered um, by the police and so forth. They're not saying anything there because they're choosing to be white, right? We also see that with elections too, White women voted for Trump. Which still blows my mind. Yeah. You know, yeah. And the first time, let's just talk about the first time. And right. that's when he was saying all the grab them, blah, 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 all that other yeah. stuff. Right. But they chose being white over being a woman. And then he put kids in cages and then more white women voted for him the second time. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I use those types of examples with businesses for people to understand how some people can show up with their intersectionality. And how, like, 
how does that go over? Because, so usually yeah, there's a pause. Yeah. And then, you know, there's like the searching of things. Um, and this is more so, you know, of, of cis white women that are in the space. They're like, yeah, you know, that's right. Again, I don't have the privilege to just be a woman because people always see that I'm black. Right. And so when they come to that moment, two things happen. They either get really defensive and they need time to process or you start to see a flicker of a light bulb or a light bulb come on. And so then that goes into the conversations they're going to have or the policies they're going to change or the support that's offered to X, Y, and Z folks. I think that the type of work that you're doing, I mean, yes, you could have those light bulbs, but it's also like, as you know, it's, it's a, it's a lifelong process. It's something that, right. and especially when you're dealing with certain cultures where uh, there's just, you know, where white supremacy and patriarchy is so deeply entrenched that it's going to take that, that much longer to try to, to, for that to be unlearned. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's like, yes, the, you know, you may have the flicker of the light bulb that goes off, but then it's also, okay, how, how are we, how are you going to do it? Because I, I have uh, conversations that sometimes go in, go into arguments with women um, about certain things, but then they, they just don't understand that, okay, what you're saying, especially let's say if we're talking about the police, mm -hmm. that, a very good example, I think, would be some of the stuff that's been happening here in San Francisco and the issues about crime and like when uh, Chesa Boudin was recalled as DA. Mm -hmm. And this thing of like, uh, you know, like crime is up. Well, you know, crime is like some crimes are up. Not all crimes are up. A mm -hmm. lot of the crime that's up is like your car getting broken into, not, not mm -hmm. necessarily violent crime too. Right. And it's like, okay, so basically you think that having to pay $700 to have your window replaced is more important. Um, for that reason, we, we should be changing the way our, um, our DA mm -hmm. and, you know, and which has a certain framework uh, so that we're putting less people, often people of color in prison. In other words, like your, your person, not just your personal secure sense of security, but mm -hmm. also your your sense of uh, of like uh, your privilege to have material possessions is more important than other people's you know other marginalized groups' mm -hmm. yeah. lives and their security. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. yeah. Yes, I um, I was on a date a while ago, and the person was new to the area. It was in, in uh, Jack London Square. And so he, uh, he happened to see me while I parked. And I was like, oh, there's parking spots over here. And so we parked. And as we were walking to the restaurant, he was like, well, maybe I should move my car into a garage. And I was like, why? And he's like, well, you know, it's the Bay Area. It's Oakland. Everyone's car gets broken into. And I was like, yeah, anyone's car can get broken into anywhere. I always have to remind people that. It's not just like, well, it's Oakland or it's downtown San Francisco or whatever. Anytime you're in a city, your car can be broken into. Yeah, well, I don't, you know, maybe I should move my car. This whole back and forth thing. And um, he's like, you know, because if they break my window, it's a whole thing. And I was like, first of all, sir, you work for a car insurance company. 
So you have the privilege to actually get it done. We have to still deal with like the red tape to get stuff done. Mm -hmm. You can do that. But what I said to him and what I will share now is that we have a lot of external factors that relate to cars being broken into. It's not just cars being broken into. It's that we have a housing crisis. We have a mental health crisis. um, We have people who are working and are not working who are just trying to make ends meet. And I have the privilege. If someone were to break into my car, that's okay. They needed to do what they needed to do. I pay for this insurance to get something fixed. But that's the thing that happens in this work where people only think about themselves. But in only to, to do this work, we have to think collectively of what happens, of how our actions, our behaviors, our privilege gives us choices of how we show up every day. And you can show up as someone who's like entitled and you want things to focus on yourself, or you can show up as someone who really wants to, you know, be mindful and aware of what they're saying and doing and their actions and words. Yeah. So again, like bringing that back to the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And you know, very often, for instance, during the diversity and wine leadership forum, everyone who is in you know, who who's there is there because this is something that is of interest to them. That yeah. changing the wine industry is something that they're even if they're not actively doing it, they're interested in 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 that. Mm-hmm. You know, often when you're dealing with corporations and companies, there are going to be people in the room who are there just because it's required of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, honestly, I've gone through some of that stuff right here at the station. You know, yeah. where we, we had a lot of, we had a massive like DEI, uh, we had a consultant and we did a lot of DEI training, uh, you know, really the first six months of the year, and we're trying to continue to do more of that, but mm-hmm. to get some people to buy into it was, it was just not that easy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I can't, I'm not going to speak for everyone who, you know, who's here at the station, but I know from having been at in other instances like this and, and seeing this too, where they're, you know, resistance because people don't want to give up their privilege and they don't want to give up their power Mm -hmm. or, you know, they're just like, you know, flat out, not interested, whatever it is. Not everyone is there to buy, who's going to buy into it. So how do you deal with that resistance? And I, and here I'm coming, I'm asking you (laughs) because I could use some advice on that too. (laughs) Um, I mean, so a couple things. One, policies, practices, procedures have to be in place, right? And so whatever is required has to happen. Everyone in California with a certain amount of employees, you have to go through sexual harassment training. You may hate it. It may be old and outdated, but you have to do it, right? And it's the same for these types of things. Second thing, um, I actually don't believe in training. Now, I know you're like, wait, you just talked about it. But I think training is kind of awful when it comes to thinking about belonging, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the reason for that is the training says, here are X, Y, and Z steps of what you need to do from an external third-party partner. And then you go back into your workplace that is not even ready for any of that. So there's no accountability that's there. That's why it's really important to put time and energy into the policies, practices, procedures. That's mm. how you hire. That's how you fire. That's how you do get someone coaching. That's how you can send someone to an appropriate training, how to communicate, how to difficult conversations, whatever it may be, right, uh, to do that. And then the, the last part is storytelling. I think storytelling is really important because it brings in a human aspect of the why something needs to happen. And that's why we do a lot of storytelling. That's why we only do workshops that focus on individual behavior change, where that also incorporates um, storytelling for things to happen. And the last thing is that 
people are expecting when it comes to um, work around diversity, inclusion, and belonging for things to happen right away. And it won't, just won't happen. It, there's just no way it will happen because there's so many structures and systems and power dynamics that are in there. And so it's just patience and time. Yeah. And sadly, it's, it's, there's no end to it. No. Right. And no. so that's the other thing, because you brought up earlier, like accomplice and ally. Um, and so I think it's important to, to highlight that an ally is what most people know. You're an ally to this community, this group, this thing, you support them. But allyship allows for comfort, meaning at any moment in time, if you're like, nah, I don't want to, like white women, I don't want to do anything that has to deal with AAPI hate. I'm just going to focus on whatever. Right. Um, people can pause and they can stop. But with an accomplice, it's someone who also, like you mentioned earlier, someone who brushes their teeth, they put on their deodorant and they check their bias and privilege. It's that routine. So that action of like, oh, a black man is walking up towards me. Am I going to cross the street? They're going to check their privilege around that. Safety is a different thing. But in general, a lot of that doesn't need to happen. Um, What thoughts are they having about people? What stereotypes are they having about people? And then how does that show up in their actions? Right. Are they physically cutting someone off? and lying at a winery? Are they um, purposely only hiring people who look like them and not like anyone else or not diversifying that? So an accomplice is someone who realizes there's no end date, where an ally is like, "Mm, I'm just going to do, I'm going to pick and choose what works for me. So, and then the other side to that is a lot of white people assume that they have to just do all the work and fix it. And to a certain extent, yes, but they're also forgetting that BIPOC people, and I'll speak for myself as black disabled woman as soon as i entered in white spaces i had to learn how to navigate white spaces i had to learn about white culture idioms vocabulary how people work together one another and when i entered in white spaces because i grew up in sacramento california and i was privileged enough to be in a middle class neighborhood that was preschool for me and so i've had to learn for years what how to survive how to include and how to understand a different culture and so we're literally just asking for white people to do the same thing as what bi people, BIPOC people have to do all the time, which is get to learn another culture. And then realize that we aren't going to know every single nook and cranny of everyone's lived experience, identity, intersectionality, because there's so much nuance to it. But we can have respect and appreciation and understanding and not feel that someone is superior to someone else. Yeah. So we need to take another quick break. For those of you tuning in, this is Biff Wave Radio Queerly Drinking, and we'll be back in just a minute. So uh, you are listening to Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. I'm Pamela Louie. My guest is Dr. Akila Kade, who uh, is the founder and, of, and CEO of Change Kade, which is an organization uh, it's an organizational development consulting firm, which offers a broad array, array of anti-racism and diversity services for companies and global brands. And uh, so we've been having, we've been talking about being an accomplice versus being an ally. Uh, we've been talking about um, trying to create change in organizations and the challenges that go along with it. And uh, what we haven't really We've talked and mentioned it, but haven't really talked that much about privilege and the difference between uh, earned and unearned privileges. And and this is something that you discussed a little bit in the Forbes article. And I'm really happy that that you talked about that because we talk about privilege a lot, but we don't really talk about the difference between earned and unearned. Mm -hmm. So uh, can you 
tell our listeners what the difference is between the two. Yeah. So um, there's two parts of privilege, as Pam said, earned and unearned. Uh, unearned privilege is what I like to always describe as like in the words of Lady Gaga, born this way. So how did you come into this world? Um, what was your family structure like? Did you have one parent, two parents? Were you raised by someone else in your family? Were you raised in a system, perhaps? Um, did you have access to school? Was it paid for? Were you in a middle-class neighborhood? What is your skin color? What's your size? What's your height? Um, the things that were essentially given to you by some someone else or how you are presented, how people perceive you um, in this world. So that is unearned privilege. So you have the privilege, regardless if you want it or not, it's there. Then we have earned privilege and earned privilege is something that someone is able to uh, do themselves. So they didn't get it from someone else or how they look, they had to do the additional work. So think of like learning a language of the place you live or getting into a certain type of company, a certain degree, title license, learn language. So that looks like, um, for, for example, myself, I was able to buy a home as a single black woman um, last year. And I did not have any help. I didn't have any like trust fund money. I didn't have money from parents. I had to do it all myself. And I bring that up because it's earned privilege. I was able to earn the privilege of being a homeowner and have a parcel in Oakland, California. But what that does is if I ever decide to have a kid, my kid would have unearned privilege because now they have property that will be in their name that would be passed down to them. And so unearned privilege can be a bridge to earn privilege or someone can just create their own earned privilege. Neither one or the other is better, but it's just understanding where privilege comes from. So you can understand how you move in the world and how you use your privilege for good. So let's get to, let's talk about some of the specifics. Okay. So let's just use the wine industry as an example, um, mm -hmm. and a, which can, but this could apply to others. How would you say, let's say unearned privilege manifest in the wine industry? So that's someone who's starting their own label their own winery. They're doing it themselves. So it's not passed down from family. It's not, you know, coming from a corporation, they're expanding or any of that. They're doing it themselves. And we know there are those around the world, particularly here um, in California. So, so that would be, that'd be earned privilege. Yeah. And it could yeah. be the white guy. It could be the white mm -hmm. guy, right. Who has that earned privilege because they're creating the culture, the tone, the experience all the way down to what people are, are drinking. Right. Um, so that can be earned privilege. Earned privilege can also look like the first woman who's running an established winery that has been traditionally run by men. That's also earned privilege because the, that standard there is like men are running the space, right? So someone in their first department. Uh, if we're looking at um, unearned privilege, it's someone is getting past, you know, the land or the property of the winery. Just here you go because of whatever that relationship is and having that space. That's unearned um, or being in the family that is part of the corporation and you get the role or job that's unearned I don't care if you went to any special university <laughs> you got that because of you know that connection that's unearned it was just basically you know given to that person well would you say that an unearned privilege would also be for instance having the like a person who has never worked in the wine industry before and then goes and opens up a wine bar and they're able to do that because of family money mm -hmm. uh, and because of other yeah. um, social and cultural privilege, like capital. Yeah. Would you oh, call absolutely. that 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because so, I, I see a fair bit of that happening in the industry. Oh, yeah. I mean, I we know we're tech own, people. Right. So, yeah. you know, as I shared, I was fired. And so I didn't have cash coming in. I couldn't apply for a small business loan, you know, and there are like little grants that are out there, but it's not enough to start a, a business. So I had to cash out my retirement to start my business. That was the only way hit get the penalties, but that was the only way I can get the cash flow. I didn't have people in my family or even friends that could invest right um, in this business. So I think that's a, a wonderful, wonderful example. Yeah. Or like, you know, the person who let's say has made a lot of money in tech or is a venture capitalist. <laughs> right. And or, just decided and, and, and the, and yeah. decides they want to go and open up a winery in Napa. Right. Yeah. yeah, right. Versus the person who maybe, you know, this typically happens for women. There are actual women out there who've done this. They are working in that that tech space or they're, you know, um, just have always had a passion for wine, but then they go and they get the funding and the finance. They don't, you know, they don't have it kind of handed to them where they have that money that's there for them to start the business. It's someone who is leaving their career to start at zero, you know, who's maybe serving at a restaurant mm -hmm. to learn how to get all the credentials to become a psalm, right? right? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it, it's also like, let's say if someone is, has been working in the tech industry, they've made a lot of money and then they decide they want to start a business. Mm -hmm. But then they say, you know, before I go and do this, I do need to learn the ropes. I'm going right. to go, you know, get a job working in a restaurant or a wine right. shop or whatever it exactly. is. Exactly. And I think that's, I guess that to me, that strikes me as being a little bit different from someone who's just like, well, I've made all this money. I'm going to go buy a winery and not know what they're doing or just. Uh, well, also adding to that, let's say that person, you know, because they can finance their own, you know, lived expenses. Right. And so maybe they are pouring at a winery and they're wanting to get to know the culture that's already showing more value and respect. That's already showing what type of business they're going to build right. because they want to learn from people opposed to making, you know, that assumption. But let's say when they do start whatever their, let's just say their winery is, mm -hmm. they decide I want to have 50% of my leadership be women or BIPOC. Right. And so that's an example of how people can use their privilege. They can do it to continually benefit for themselves, uphold values of white supremacy, or they can do things differently to provide more opportunities for those who aren't, you know, people will say marginalized or underrepresented, but what they really are is intentionally ignored and historically excluded. And so they're realizing like there's systems that are in place that are holding these groups, these people back. I'm going to use my privilege to start to change that. Right. And I think that's a that's something about this conversation about privilege that we it, it's a much more nuanced conversation. I think people realize where there is there's there's unearned and there's earned privilege. But it's also yeah. like, how are you using their pri your, your privilege? Like most of us, you know, nearly everyone has some privilege of some sort and some people have a lot more than others. But what are you doing with it? Uh, like if, if right. someone's like can say, you know, I never have to. I made a hundred million dollars working in tech. Yeah. I never need to work another day in my life. And I'm yeah. going to take 10 million of those dollars and start a winery, but I am, but I'm going to make sure that it is, is starting off on, on the right foot where there is meaningful diversity, right. you know, not, not just performative, but like real true yeah. diversity. Then. Yeah. That, I think that's an example of how people can use their, their privilege for good. And I think that that's something uh, that in the work that we do, we that we need to be talking about this more because I think that people can who have privilege can sometimes feel shamed by it, and I think that yes, that that shaming people is never going to, you're never necessarily going to get the results 
that you want. You know, yeah. when people feel yeah. shamed, I and mean, we've all feel shamed at times. And what's I think our natural inclination often when we when we feel shamed, at least our the first thing is to kind of retreat, right? Right. Um, and some people then will like sit on it and then come out and be like, okay. And then some people will just never, you know, they'll just totally back away. But yeah. I think that if if we can have these conversations of like, yes, this is something that you have or that these people have, but it doesn't necessarily like that's just a reality of life. Right. Uh, but how, how can we take this reality and turn it into something that's really positive and altruistic? So it's with our choices, right? right. When it comes down to it, I, I can't stress um, Spotswood Winery enough because uh, their leadership has decided what can we do to make sure people have fair, actual livable wages in the Napa Valley. You know, not like, hey, we're going to pay everyone minimum wage. It's Napa's expensive. That area is expensive, right? Um, what can we do to make sure people's you know, benefits are covered and their their family members' health benefits are covered? What can we do, right? So that's that's a, a way in which people are using their privilege. But again, as I said earlier, it comes down to every day we can do big and small things some days it's just small, some days it's just big, or a combination of both, to use our privilege for good. So I commonly talk about white supremacy as not being a bad thing. And people always question that. Like, why? Because, you know, there's the Proud Boys and KKK and white supremacy. And all of that is true. But white supremacy is a system that is designed to set people up for success and the social determinants of health. So you can live a long, healthy life. So that means, you know, getting pulled over and getting a speeding ticket or no ticket at all, being able to have your pain believed and providers who believe what's going on for you and your health. It means being able to get promoted. It means being able to get into a program. I mean, it means so many things, right? Well, how, but how, So how are you, uh, how are you connecting that specifically though to white supremacy? Because white supremacy is a system again, mm -hmm. because if, if we take the counter of that, of me, of a Black person, if I'm pulled over by police, I have a chance of being murdered or maimed. When I go to the emergency room or see my doctor, my pain isn't believed because Black women's bodies, enslaved Black women's bodies, were used to test things out and create things. And so in actual med school, people are taught and starting to change. In the past couple of years, it started to change. But people are taught that Black women have a higher pain tolerance. But that's not true. Yes, these are real things. And I deal with it all the time because I have to go to the uh, hospital. Um, it also means when we, again, we're talking about white supremacy, it affords the neighborhoods that still here in the Bay Area, there's people's deeds that say Jewish people and Black people can't live or can't buy or can't own in that in those neighborhoods, right? So white supremacy is setting someone up for success. When we say dismantle white supremacy, what that means is that everyone gets the same thing as this superior group, this dominant group, white people. So it means everyone has an opportunity to have their pain believed. It means everyone has an opportunity to be promoted. It means we wouldn't have to have things, you know, like affirmative action or these, you know, literal objectives that people have in their workplaces to say, we're going to make sure we hire 50% of BIPOC people. It's just that we are making sure that everyone has the opportunity for success to succeed and have livable, healthy communities, opportunities to thrive. But I, I don't understand why you're framing that as white supremacy, because to me, it, having, uh, you know, livable communities where everyone has, you know, has good health care, you mm -hmm. know, where everyone has like true opportunities for success. To me, I don't think of that as something that is 
like a specifically like white value. Um, you have the lens of having all the things that you need. Now you have different points of intersectionality. Okay. So you wouldn't think about it that way. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll keep it very simple. Sure. If I go into any place that has a line, someone's going to stand in front of me and say, oh, I didn't see you. When I say like, hey, I'm in line, I didn't see you. So as a black person, we're not seen, we're not valued, we're not respected. And how do we know that? We see that in how police treat us. We see that in what happens with healthcare. We see that in the, in the stories of homes, black homes not valued at the same rate as a, as a white family's home or a white person's home. We see all of that. And so white supremacy is the lens in which white people feel everyone gets everything. So white supremacy is actually bad people, but white supremacy is how white people are moving through their lives every day. And they don't have to do a fraction of what I have to do to survive. And so that's why I'm saying it's a system. White supremacy is in the very policies, practices, and procedures at your radio station as to why you had a diversity trainer come in. It is the same for the school systems that we have out here too. It's the same for, you know, anything that has people in it. The favoritism is to the dominant group. The people who run it are to the dominant group. The people who are there or teaching or whatever it is, is to the dominant group. It's to, we're here, you know, in the, the Bay Area, AI can't see my hair because white people are designing systems for people who have straight hair, right? And so when we talk about white supremacy, we have to realize it's the structures, the systems, the values, and the principles in which this country operates. And so that's why I talk about if we, if I had the same thing that you had, Pam, my life would be a lot easier. If I had the same thing as half of, you know, the white people here in the anyone in Pack Heights in San Francisco, my life would be a lot easier, but I don't have those things. I would love to go into a room in a privileged space and not have to explain myself. I would love to, the times when I like to go to the Four Seasons of the Ritz-Carlton out here in the Bay Area to write my book, not have to explain that I am Dr. Kaday. I would love to do that, right? And so it's really important that we realize our privilege into what white supremacy is. I think I, I hear what you're saying. I guess I just am not just that I'm just using like the term as like that being like part of white supremacy, which is just not clicking for me. But I. So let me ask you, what is yeah. what is white supremacy to you? Well, I, I think of what you're you're saying. Um, I think of it like it is a system and mm -hmm. it's a system which is which is a white supremacist system. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, I think that. Uh, you know, the, the values to me, it's about certain values, which are, you know, they might be valued, uh, things that are valued by white people and white supremacists. But I think that there are people who are black and brown and, mm -hmm. you know, and Asian who also about like good health, the right, you know, good health is something that is, is valued, you know, mm -hmm. being able to be, uh, successful, uh, in terms of your career. And I don't mean necessarily monetarily, but I mean, just to be able to, to do something where you thrive, yeah. where you feel fulfilled as a person right. is something that I think is, uh, I would at least like to think that's a universal value. Right. Um, so I guess that's where, um, you know, that's, that's just something where yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about it. Uh, you know, someone just, uh, you know, sent a message and saying, you know, white superiority. Uh, I think it like, it's a very, it's a very interesting conversation. Um, and I wish we had the time to have it more, <laughs> but, but we are just about out of time right now. So 
Uh, but I would love to have you back sometime so we we can continue this. You know, there's a to. yeah, there are there are a lot of other topics that I was hoping we would get to, but you know that hasn't happened. I would so. I would love to come back in the new year. Okay, well that that would be great. <laughs> uh, so just before before we uh, tune off, uh, is there anything that you're working on right now that you would like for all of our listeners to know about? Yeah. Um, so one, if you want to learn more about um, my approach to dismantling white supremacy and why it's my love language, uh, or to learn more about my book that's coming up, um, you can follow me on my website or you can visit my website, Change Cadet. So the word change and Cadet, like cadet, C-A-D-E-T, or on any social media platform, uh, Change Cadet. We also have the Change Cadet Action Network where people can learn and unlearn as much as they want. And that's all on the website as well. So um, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been uh, Dr. Akila Kadeh has been with us for the last hour. Uh, who Dr. Akila Kadeh is a force uh, within, uh, I guess, numerous industries, although I know you uh, specifically with the work that you do uh, within the wine industry. But, uh, you know, thank you so, so much for being here. Uh, you're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco, and we'll be back in just a minute.